Hallelujah. Awesome. So we need a visitation of God. Amen. I think if we look at the things in the country, we would have to say that we do need a visitation. And I'm not talking necessarily about ancestors there. I've already mentioned that. Acts 26, 18. Paul said that the Lord Jesus said to him, you are to open the eyes of the blind, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they can find a place or receive their inheritance amongst those who are sanctified by me. Amen? So it's no point in having an attitude, getting aggressive. We need to pray with compassion, but more than that, we need to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so the world needs a visitation, and that's why I want to just continue to talk about it. We need an outpouring. We need a move of the Holy Ghost. Amen? And I've touched on it the last two weeks. This is the third message that I want to bring. And um, I've said it in other words, but I want to say it in, a, in some, maybe some different words today. And it's very easy, and I'm using an old-fashioned word that has experienced a revival. I looked the word up, and they even gave it a graph, a time graph of its usage. And it reached its usage you know, much higher in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Then the word in its usage dipped in the 50s. But right now, up in the 20s, the usage of that word is experiencing a revival. <laughs> and the word is jaded. When you talk about being jaded, what does the word jaded mean? Jaded means you are satiated with something and therefore you are put off of it. And unfortunately, I think there's too many South Africans that are jaded by what's happening in the country. And you know, you reach, you reach a limit. I don't want to hear anymore. You know, I've I've had enough of hearing about corruption. I've had enough of this, and I've had enough of whatever. We can become jaded in our Christian walk even. We can become jaded because maybe we're disappointed. We can become jaded. Maybe God hasn't answered our prayers the way that we want him to answer our prayers. We can become jaded, all right? But just on that note of revival, let me point this out, that when there's a revival, very often other things experience revival. Let me clarify. Very often, when there's a revival of God's Spirit, there's a revival of other things. Evil is revived. Why is that? Well, because the devil is the enemy, and if he sees God moving, he'll be a stupid devil, he'll be a non-functioning devil, if he sat around and did nothing about it. He's got to do it, you know, because that's his job description. And so in the 40s and the 50s and even into the 60s, there were great revivals of God. There were all the tent revivals, healing evangelists, A.A. Allen and uh, Oral Roberts and, and many others. There was William Branham. You know, great miracles happening the day of tent meetings where, you know, they didn't have stadia like they have today, but they would take tents and itinerate, pitch tents. You know, and there were many others. But um, there was F.F. F. Bosworth, for example. Even here in South Africa, Reynard Bonker. And okay, he wasn't the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But do you know that the cults, Jehovah's Witness, Scientology, Mormonism, all came about at that particular time? Why was there a revival of cults? Because there was a revival of God. And so what we often do is because the news does not report what God is doing. So we have to take inferences. We've got to make the connection. 
So when the media is reporting that there is a revival of you know, demonic stuff and now they're going to have answers today, we've got to take note. It's because there is something happening in South Africa that the enemy is extremely upset about. The devil knows he's got public media. The devil knows he's got ENCA and SABC in his pocket. The devil knows that the media only gives bad news but not good news. But I know enough to know that there's things happening. Everybody that I speak to, everybody, I spoke to Pastor Dave Basson this week. And in the middle of COVID, they planted a church in Malmesbury. It was a struggling work, a handful of people I've preached there. And God gave Dave supernaturally the name of the pastor that should come working and farming in Kroblesdal. And Dave phoned him. Dave phoned him at the moment he had just finished praying in the orchard and saying, Jesus, I've had enough of farming. I want to work for you. I want to be full-time in ministry. And Dave phoned him. And they've planted and established the church in Malmesbury. Come on, somebody say. Now, the cameras were not there to report it. And then that story can be multiplied over and over and over again in the middle of COVID, in the middle of COVID, in the middle of COVID. At its worst time, something is happening. Now, all we hear is of the deaths, the infections. We hear of the corruption, the theft of billions of rands. And yes, it is sickening, but don't become jaded. Become even more determined. And so all of these things happen. Now, I attended a conference where Paul Manwaring was teaching, and he was teaching on administrating for revival. And uh, he's from Bethel Church in Reading. So he works full-time for Bill Johnson at Bethel. And he is very much responsible for the explosive growth that has taken place in Bethel because he helped him to put structures in place and things like this. He was in the corporate world. He knew how to structure companies and things like that and to structure towards growth. So he came on board, volunteered, and now he goes around the world and he teaches on administrating towards revival. But he said, Bill Johnson, every time he preaches, every time before he gets up to preach, he reminds himself of these four things. So I decided just to Google, and then I found a podcast by Bill Johnson. And Bill Johnson was talking, and he was talking about these four things, and the way he referred to them was, he said, I want to give you four values that create the atmosphere of the miraculous. He said, these four values are like the four legs of a chair. They're each equal in strength and equal in importance. He said, you can sit on a three-legged chair with a little bit of effort. You could sit on a two-legged chair with a lot more effort. You could probably hardly sit on a one-legged chair. But then it wouldn't be called a chair, is it? And so he started to speak about it. But just before that, he said the four thoughts. He said, the trucking industry, truckers who carry loads have to regularly stop the truck and get out and they have to check the load because the loads settle, the loads move, and they have to retighten the load. 
So the, the load has to be resettled. And he said that every now and then, what he does, as God is moving, he says sometimes he notices that the load has settled. And he goes back to his church and he restraps and he reties down the load in the form of reminding them of these four values that cause the atmosphere of the miraculous. Now, he says, the number one thought that we need to have foremost in our thinking, if you want to have the values of the kingdom, the values that create atmosphere, number one, this value is important. God is good. See, we, many of us come from a background of real traditional churches where God is at best just an angry, distant, and hardly interested God. Yeah. Many of us from Pentecostal whatever backgrounds. But God is everything but that. God is a good God. All the time, God is good. And of His goodness and mercy, there's... It's endless what we can say about it, the descriptions that we can bring about. But God is so good. God is not evil, nor can he tempt us with evil. God doesn't have an issue with you. God doesn't even have an issue with your sin because he's made provision with you for your sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't mean to say he wants you to sin. He doesn't want you to sin. He's made every provision for you for your sins. But God is a good God. Many Christians, through the articulate, terrible, condemnatory preaching of preachers, live with condemnation in their lives as if they are always disappointing God. And I want to tell you that God is not disappointed with you. Is that okay? And in Christ in particular, you take on an exceptional value. Every human being is valuable to him. But when you come into a different relationship with him, when you come to know Jesus, you become his son, his daughter. I mean, you would never do anything evil to your sons or your daughters, to your children. You would do everything possible. Why do you think Jesus comes and reveals him as the father, the father, the father? Whereas the Jewish scribes and Pharisees were still speaking about him as Yahweh. Jesus comes, my father, my father, my father. And the one time they wanted to kill him, when the decision came to kill him, it began in John chapter 5, because they said, by calling him your father, you make yourself equal with him, that you're a son of God. Andre was telling me about it. He was reading in one of the Targums about a particular Jewish leader, a particular rabbi that had a, a visitation of God, like a vision and he was so shocked by the vision, he actually died of a heart attack. Because in the vision, he saw Jesus at the right hand of God. And the thing that caused him to have a heart attack and die was this. In his dying breath, he said, there's a man at the right hand of God. Come on, church. And God has done something incredible for us. He's good. Paul says it, and I've got to try and resist preaching on these points, but I need to just establish it. So God is a good God, amen? 
and he's done incredibly good things for us. And we see it, you know, in the parable of the tenants or the parable of the pounds. The one got the one pound, said, I knew you were wicked. So when he came back, the master came back, said, well, okay, well, then I will treat you according to your revelation of me. The others were like, he's good, you know, well, let's invest the money. And they got the 10 back and the five back. But the one that had the revelation, you were wicked, you were mean, he got nothing. He lost what he had. Implicit in that parable, what Jesus was trying to tell us is that your view of your heavenly father needs to change. He's a good God. Amen. Amen. So the second thing that uh, Bill Johnson teaches us about is that, number two, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. Nothing is impossible for God. If we read the Bible, we're reading it's a book of impossibilities that became possible because of people who believed in God. Amen? Amen. I mean, Israel was in an impossible situation, in captivity. They were a nation of slaves. They were a rabble at most. There was no leadership. There was no nothing. And then a deliverer comes and under the mighty hand of God delivers them and takes them through the wilderness. And then under Joshua, they go into the promised land. God drives out seven nations out of Canaan, and they occupy that land and it becomes the land, the promised land, the beautiful land, the prosperous land, you know, from slaves. And not only that, but when they left, and of course, I'm just mentioning one, the whole Bible is a story of impossible, impossible, impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible, and that's what we hear, we read in the pages of the Bible, verses after verses, story after story after story. Impossible, but God. Impossible, but God. Impossible, but God. Amen? And then, of course, you know, so remember these are the four pillars or values of a kingdom mindset that changes the atmosphere so the miraculous can happen in your life. So that we can have constant visitations of God. And so, you know, that second one, I mean, wow, that's amazing. But then, of course, in Matthew 17 and verse 20, Jesus says, For the one who has faith, for the one who has faith, you can say to this mountain, Be removed from here and cast into the sea. And he says, for, for him who believes, or to him who believes, nothing is impossible. Can you believe that for God, it's easy? I, I noticed I've got two amens over here. Because when you say, Nothing's impossible for God, hundred and something people say, Amen. But then when I say the other part of that, it's the same God speaking when he says, nothing is impossible for the one who believes. I get two amens. So maybe I should repeat it. To the one who has faith, nothing is impossible. So come on, church. The next time you're facing something, a letter from the bank or whatever it is, the first thing should be not, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. It should be looking at it and saying, nothing is impossible for God and nothing is impossible for me who believes. Amen? I mean, Jesus puts those two things together. He links it with the word impossible. Come on. Everybody say, nothing's impossible for me. I believe. Nothing. Come on. These are the values. These are the values. Remember, I'm just settling the load. Remember, I'm just, you know, maybe it got shifted during COVID. 
Maybe we're just strapping down the load. Maybe we're just reestablishing the legs of the chair of the value system of the miraculous. Number three, Bill Johnson says this. He says, every single issue in life was settled at the cross. Every single issue. Everything. Every hurt, every pain, every disappointment, every sickness, every disease, every brokenness was settled at the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Not only was he saying it is finished about the work of salvation that he had come and provided, but technically he signaled an end to human misery, to human suffering. When he said it's finished, it meant that now there was an answer for everything that came against human beings. Somebody once, how true it is, I don't know, took all the diseases of the world and they classified it and they said it comes into 39 categories, one for every whip stripe that Jesus took on his back. I've, I've looked for it, I cannot find it, but however, whatever, every stripe on his back, carried, covered every particular sickness on the face of the planet. Every bit of brokenness. Is that okay? Every deficiency in the body. Everything Jesus went through on the cross, when he talked about his bones, when he talked about you know, his breathlessness, when he talked about all of those things, when he hung on the cross in that pain, in that situation, having to push himself up against a nail to suck in air. The Romans devised crucifixion because it is a slow and extremely painful means of execution. So the horrendous dislocation of shoulders, he can heal dislocated shoulders. Amen? He can heal every pain, every disease, every sickness. He was rejected at the cross. He hung there in nakedness and shame. And there are so many Christians that walk around with a sense of shame. I think Louis brought it up this week with our meeting with Lee, and he said, there's so many orphans in the world. And Jesus said it went to the disciples, I'm going, but I'm coming back, and I'm going again, but then I'm sending the Spirit, my other self. I will not leave you as orphans. There are so many young people these days who, are, who have an orphan spirit because of the abandonment of their parents. That abandonment of parenthood, of parents and especially fathers, is at an epidemic level. And if they're physically present, very often they're emotionally and spiritually absent, chasing careers. And young people are growing up as orphans. But there's healing for an orphan heart at the cross. And if we will recognize the cure for everything, one of the prophets asked, is there a balm in Gilead? The cross said yes. There is a healing balm in Gilead. There is. The psalmist said in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is with me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, is worthy of repeating. (laughs) O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name, who forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. And you know, often we think of all of our diseases as physical ailments. Come on, there's a disease of the soul. 
But he heals them all. He heals them all. There's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, even, where the proverb says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction drives it far from him. But there's a lot of adults who still walk with folly in their hearts. But you know, if they come to know Jesus, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And God can remove the folly. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The cross is the answer to everything. Come on, at that we should say a good loud amen. Amen. You know, Bill Johnson says each of the legs are equal. I think this one's more equal than all the rest. (laughs) The cross is the answer to everything. We can find the answer to every issue at the cross. Go to the cross. It's why the old-time people, because it was so powerfully taught, I will cling to the old rugged cross. And they would sing it over and over again. They understood the finality of the work of Jesus and its completeness in its answer for all of us. And the last thing that Bill Johnson says, the last thing he says, equal to all of the other three. So let's remind ourselves. The first one, God is good. Second one, nothing is impossible for God. Third one, every single issue that we can face was dealt with at the cross of Jesus. How many of you read it here? What is the fourth value that will change the atmosphere of your mind and cause you to live the life of the miraculous and welcome visitations of God? Every believer is significant. Every believer. You are significant. God's purposes and plans include you. God's purposes and plans are not for Pastor John only. They're for you. You are significant. Come on, say, I am significant. I'm God's significant other. (laughs) Come on, say it. I'm God's significant other. I am. I'm significant to God. God has got a significant purpose and plan for you. Often, we fall into the trap of valuing one believer's giftings and callings and anointings above the other. That's why everyone that God calls to ministry wants to be a prophet these days. It's a good thing that we're still not in the Old Testament. Because if you got one prophecy wrong, you were stoned. I mean, God said it. He said it to the people of Israel. He said it. Listen, basically stop prophesying. <laughs> and uh, people were coming and they were going, you know, God also spoke to one of the prophets. And people were coming and said, no, 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 I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. When God had called him a prophet. Because he was like, yes, if I get it wrong. <laughs> Just one accusation. You prophesied this and you got it wrong. You know. Yeah. Mind you, but they are still stoning prophets today, just in other ways. <laughs> it's with their words. But you are stoned to death. So what we do is we value a ministry. We value a ministry. If only I could, if only, and we make a mistake. No, no, God anointed you to operate where he's called you. He gifted you different. Why is it that everybody, when you say you're called to ministry, they think of, you know, they think, yeah, they're going to get my pulpit. No, 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 God called me here. Yeah. 
I give it to who I want to give it to. Is that all right? And so we all think, so then we think, okay, because I'm not preaching, not a prophet, then it means I'm useless. Man, come on. Every member, a minister, you are significant to God. So now last week we welcomed a young man that was sitting at the back jaw. His mom, one of my intercessors, was the most unassuming woman, the quietest, probably the most self-conscious woman you'd ever met in your life. But she would pray for me consistently. If you greeted her, Auntie Mercia, in the cloud of witnesses, thank you for all your prayers, they, they, God answered them. And very often, if I came up to her and said, Auntie Mercia, how are you? I mean, her cheeks would go blood red. You remember, Auntie Mercia? Her cheeks would go blood red. She didn't like, you know, any attention. She was the most, she just wanted to be inconspicuous. Even in the greatest revival, she still sat on the back row. I think once she moved forward one row, <laughs> then you knew there was a powerful move of God. But Auntie Mercia would move in and just sit down there. And then one day, she brought me this thing from the doctor, from an ear specialist. And um, she said, um, the ear specialist from this other lady in the home cell, we were in one of our home cell meetings. And he said, take this to your pastor. He would be very interested to see and it was um, a particular graph and thing of another lady's ears who attended the home cell. And she started to get growths, like polyps on the inside of there. I don't understand it all. And she was booked for surgery because it was seriously affecting her hearing. She became extremely hard of hearing. And she was booked for surgery. And the ear specialist said, we're going to have to go in there and we're going to have to cut those things out to open up the ear. And it was right deep inside and so that she can hear again. And um, Auntie Mercia came and she gave it to me. And, and I said, what is this? She said, no, he said, you'd be very interested to see this. I said, I am, but, but I didn't pray for that lady. Who prayed for that lady? She said, no, I prayed for her a few weeks ago in home cell. She said, the Lord just led me, and I went up behind her, and I just put my hands on her ears, and I prayed for her. And afterwards, she said, I can hear. I can hear clearly. She went to the ear specialist, and the ear specialist wrote it up, and he included the audio graph of her hearing in red and blue lines. Remember, it was... It was back those days. Some people would call that the olden days. <laughs> but it was back, it was almost like where, you know, the, the big brick phone, you know. And it, uh, those were the real smartphones because only smart people could use them. <laughs> and so he said, this is what the ear specialist said. There is not one growth in your ear to this lady. When did you have the operation? She said, no, doctor, I had no operation. You're my doctor. And he said, whoever did this operation is a far better specialist than me. Because, because where every one of those polyps are, there's a tiny little scar, and it is the work of a real specialist. I can't even do that. Come on. One of the first most outstanding miracles in the church wasn't me. It was Auntie Mercia. Come on, say it. Everyone is significant. Yes. 
Come on, say, I am significant in the kingdom of God. Come on, see, the Lord wants to visit us. Is that okay? But if you don't have these things in place, the visitation will go past. It's kind of like when those kings came together. You know, the kings of Israel and them also then made an alliance and went out and uh, they were ready to engage in battle. And when they spoke to the prophet, I believe this was Elisha, he said, dig this valley full of ditches. And when they woke up in the morning, the ditches were full of water. And when the enemy kings with their soldiers looked out across the valley, the sunrise, the sun was shining on the water, but making them look blood red. And they said, well, there's a great massacre and there's just blood everywhere. Let's get out of here, you know. And so they left. What if they had not dug the ditches? What if you don't have these four pillars in place of a miracle mentality? What if we don't have them in place? A move of God will come. You will not be able to contain it. You will not be prepared for it. We won't be in the place. So let's remind ourselves we're strapping down the load. Number one, God is? All right. So let me say them, then you say amen. Because I like amens. Number one, God is good. Number two, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible to him who believes God. Number three, every human condition, situation, circumstance was dealt with at the cross. It is finished. Number Four, I am, <laughs> thank you for that. I am so significant. My brother-in-law said something to me one day, and I want to prove him wrong. I think I have proved him wrong. He says, yeah, Johnny, he still call me Johnny. I don't like it, you know. I like walking, so don't call me Johnny Walker. So he says, yeah, Johnny. He said, another year old. He said, phew. I think that's a reflection of his own heart. But he said, you know what? I always say, put your hand in a bucket of water and take it out. And the hole you leave is the measure of your significance. Yeah. I mean, if I didn't know better, I would be discouraged. Yeah. So I said, no, when I pull my arm out the water, it leaves a hole. I'm significant. Yeah. And then he just laughed. Yeah. Come on, you're significant. Yeah. You are God's significant other. Didn't Jesus say, or was said about Jesus, he didn't grasp at that position of equality with God. He didn't need to grasp at it because he was equal to God. We don't have to grasp for anything because he made us God's. Is that okay? He elevated us. That's what we celebrate with the ascension. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you visit him or care for him. You know, you crown him with glory and honor. You set him above. Come on, you are set above. Come on, church. You are set above not only circumstances, you are set above other people. You are set above other spirits. Do you know that you were even set above angels? Amen. So nothing is above you. Nothing. Everything is beneath you. Being subjected under your feet. Everything. 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 Even those thoughts that plague your minds. It's under you. 
You have control over it. You have dominion over it. You can take those thoughts and make them subject to Christ. Christ in you. That's the weapon of our warfare. If you find that you're worrying, you're out of faith, just take those thoughts, those same thoughts. Don't try and stop your mind from thinking. You can't stop that. Just change those thoughts into faith thoughts. Start speaking to yourself and saying, nothing is impossible for me. I have faith in God. This is the way that it's going to happen. If I have a bad dream and I wake up, I go back into the dream and I change the dream. Seriously, seriously. Otherwise, you wake up mislooking, worried. I go back into the dream and I finish the dream with a positive, and then I fall asleep. Hallelujah. So, let me just carry on a little bit. So, we've strapped down the the load. Is that all right? And um, I just want to say, if those values are in place, if that miracle mindset is set. You will start to experience, like in the book of Acts, to be filled with the Spirit and to be filled again. To be filled again and to be filled continuously with the Spirit becomes an easy thing. It becomes an automatic thing. Because often we read of Ephesians 5.18, be being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit, and we try to get filled with the Spirit, but our minds are working against us. We have maybe an issue with God because there's something, you know, out and we think maybe God is being a bit unfair. Because why is it whenever you go through a hard time, you think you're the exception. It doesn't happen to anyone else, just to you. You start to get offended with God. You know, God is good and you need to be able to trust God. Is that okay? That your track, your race is not somebody else's race. But if you don't settle it that God doesn't have an issue with you, you will think that God is overlooking you or he's ignoring you or he's found some sin in your life. Oh my goodness, that's a good one, eh? You found some sin in your life and he's not going to act for you. You know, then what have I done wrong? It's people look at me with big eyes when I often say to them, you know, when things are going wrong, I say to them, have you ever thought maybe you're doing something right? Because there is a devil. He's the accuser, he's the opposer, he's the resistor. And so maybe it's because you're doing something right. So we read it in the book of Acts, I mean, how the Acts of the Apostles, it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, there's no final chapter, there's no amen. At the end of the book, it just ends. Because there were many other Acts. The Acts of the Holy Spirit are continuing today. Auntie Mercia's name could have been written in the book of Acts if it was continuing to be recorded. And so can you. And so that, that continues. I just love it. On the day of Pentecost, 120 together, go wait for the promise of the Father. And uh, Marnus and Megan, two weeks ago, Marnus just came to me and said, thank you for what you teach in this church. My life has changed. Our lives have changed. And then Megan sent a beautiful message to Bev. And um, Megan just spoke to me this morning. She said, you know that the owner of the crash where their kids go phoned her this week and said, I don't know what you're teaching your kids, but I just want to tell you, your daughter, the oldest daughter, prays for everyone who's sick. Listen, children or teachers, and they're getting healed. Is that right? 
And the teacher said, and they all get healed. All of them. This little child. You see, children, that's why Jesus said, Matthew 18, become like little children. Children don't easily get jaded. I mean, there's a certain naivety in children. There's a certain childlikeness in children. Auntie Mercia had that quality. But, you know, we become so grown up and so concerned about everything, and we, you know, and all, and we wear this stuff heavy. And one of the things we lose is our childlikeness. Yeah. If I read it in the book of Acts, I see those great mighty apostles, many of them, which is so childlike. I mean, they took Jesus at his word. And they were always positioned for the miraculous. So in Acts chapter 2, something that had never happened before, they're all waiting. And suddenly from heaven comes a mighty rushing wind and fills the place where they're meeting. And then tongues of fire appear. I'm sure it was that same pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness. But then that leading, that leading angel, I think that pillar of fire that was appeared, I'm sure it was a fiery pillar of 120 angels all together, and it separated each one of them a flame on their own heads so that each of them now could be led. Each of them could be under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And they all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And at the sound, it drew the nations that had come to worship for the Passover, and uh, many of them, 3,000 of them, got saved. Because these men were acting like drunk men. And Peter stands up and he says, these men are not drunk like you suppose. No, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's too early to be drunk with natural wine. But I want to tell you, this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. But with us believers now, very often what's happened, we're too jaded, we're too grown up, we're too adult to be drunk in the Holy Spirit. We're too resistant to the things of the Holy Spirit. Come on, if we want revival, you know, the chances are you may get drunk. Woo, bring it on, Jesus. Bring it on, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. I once said to the Lord, don't ever do that to me. When I watched a preacher in Toronto get drunk, because he really was looking really stupid and, uh, you know, disorderly and drunk, until I got sozzled drunk, not once, twice. And the second time, I was so drunk for the entire afternoon, Pastor Pete had to take me home. But on the way, I was so thirsty, and they tell me that that is a sign of heavy drinking, is that afterwards, you're exceptionally thirsty. Because I got in the car, yeah, I couldn't even sit up straight. And when somebody stopped to greet me at the gate of here, and Pete stopped, I went forward, and my head fell on the dashboard. I was paralytic drunk, you know? And they were going, oh! Pastor John, because I did once say, don't do that to me, but now I'm loving it. I'm like, oh, Jesus, this is awesome. Because we were in a meeting where I felt what Peter felt. My spirit filled this entire room. Everybody was under my spirit. I knew what was going on in the room. I knew every sickness. I knew thoughts. I knew things. I knew resistances. It was like my spirit extended from here to the back wall, and everybody was under it. So I said to Peter, I'm so thirsty, I'm so thirsty. And he's laughing his head off because Pete used to drink heavily at one stage before he became a pastor. Well, was it after he was a pastor? No, no, before he was a pastor. 
So I said, oh, I'm so thirsty, I'm so thirsty. He said, all right, let's just stop at the petrol station down the road here and let me get you something to drink. Not thinking, you know, how I look. I'm holding on to the, the seatbelt and I'm like, and all of the petrol attendants knew me. I had witnessed to them all, given them all Bibles. So one comes to the car window and Pete says, can you get me two Cokes, please? And then the one looks at me and goes, hey, Mfunis, yeah. And I'm trying to tell him, no, not, uh, not what you're thinking. He's going, ah. So the next day, I thought I should go and explain myself. And he said, hey, I'm for this. He said, I saw you yesterday. He said, you were ducky really, ne? And I'm trying to explain him to him, no, 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 it's not what you're thinking. <laughs> so anyway, ruined my reputation. And so these men are drunk, as you suppose. But a power, listen church, a power came on them. Because they exceeded their normal limits of the Holy Spirit. You know, when you get drunk, you've drunk more than what you should. <laughs> Even when they test you on the side of the road, you know, for drunkenness, there's an amount that you should not exceed because then you are termed drunk. Yeah. When last did we exceed? Mm. Were we happy with the, the little bit of well, the odd goosebump? See, visitation, and that's why we just need to restrap the load because a visitation is where, where you yield to the Spirit. And you say, okay, Lord. It's not always drunk. But I think if I look at many of you, I think he would love to make you drunk. In fact, if I look at your faces, I would love for him to make you drunk. Amen. Bring it on. Look, some people are susceptible to drunkenness. <laughs> You know, it's amazing to me when it happens, people will say, ah, oh, there she goes. When is it your time to go? No, no. You see, we like to resist and be in control because that looks too undignified. But there's a power in not being in control anymore. There's a power. You see, one of the reasons why God does the drunkenness thing, one of the reasons why God does the holy laughter thing, besides filling you, besides making you joyful, one of the reasons why he wants to encounter you like that is to show you who actually is in charge, who is in control of you, because you're too stiff and starchy to yield because you want to be in control. Or are you going to surrender and have a good laugh and maybe a good cry? And maybe get drunk in the process. And maybe make a noise. And maybe stand up and go, hallelujah, glory. Maybe start running around or something like that. You see, he wants to be in charge of his church. But we're too wholly dignified. Too self-conscious. Too, too whatever. I don't want to be embarrassed in the presence of God. What will Pastor John think? To me, it looks like glory. If somebody falls on the floor, that's holy. That's glory. Yeah, it was the early church, 120, including Jesus' mother, drunk. These people who were so religious, 
that they knew the curses spoken in the Old Testament about giving your neighbor strong drink so they would not get drunk. They knew all those verses. And here they are rolling around. Speaking another language. And he has all the other Jews that have come. And they're going, these people are drunk. These people are drunk. These people are drunk. These people are drunk. And Peter's standing up there. And we always imagine him like this. Brethren, these men are not drunk as you suppose. He was also drunk. He was probably standing there going, hey, uh, Brethren, Bruce, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's just not described like that in the book of Acts. Come on, church. Come on, we say revival, we say miracles, we say all of these things, and then there's a few manifestations, and we'll be like, whoops, Jesus, don't do it to me. Come on, church. Either the Holy Spirit is in charge, or He's Lord, or we're going to just resist Him with our flesh, or we're going to welcome Him, we're going to be a Pentecostal, charismatic, spiritual church, or we're going to be a flesh-filled, natural church. What are we going to be? Come on, I just touched on the four principles. All I did was strap down the load and already look these manifestations. Come on, there's been plenty enough to cry about for the last year with COVID. <laughs> but hey, come on in yeah, there should be plenty to laugh about. I mean, don't you wish you could laugh like that from deep in your stomach? Well, it starts just by grinning. Just smile. <laughs> if you smile and, and give a little giggle, it will come. You know, you kind of got to cooperate with God, you know? I mean, some of you can feel it bubbling inside. It feels like Holy Ghost Enos. Come on, it'll change your spiritual life. It'll change your prayer life. I promise you. I promise you. Because the Bible says laughter doeth good like a medicine. There have been people who've laughed themselves into healing. The doctor's given them bad news. You're going to die. And they've laughed and laughed and laughed and they're still living. Because somewhere along the line they laughed. Laughter doeth good like a medicine. Amen. The whole book of Acts, I was reading much of it yesterday. The whole book of Acts, a book of the miraculous, a book of the miraculous. But it was these fishermen. God used simple fishermen to change the world because it says in front of the same high priests, the two, Caiaphas and Annas, the same two high priests that crucified Jesus. Peter and John went and stood in front of the same two and said, you crucified the Lord of glory. The stone you build is rejected. And in the middle of that speech, or just at the beginning of that speech to the Sanhedrin, it says, and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Come on, church. In front of persecution, they'd been thrown in jail for the night. And in the front of persecution, possible flogging, you know, with whips, he gets filled with the Holy Ghost. I mean, we hear a bit of bad news and we get filled with jadedness. He stands in front of the Sanhedrin. The Bible tells us he got filled with the Holy Ghost and begins to speak. Now, maybe when he stood up and now it was his turn, maybe he stood up and just went, Shabbat, oh, Shabbat, and he just, ooh, ooh, just uh, if I carry on, I'm going to get drunk. Uh, let me just tell you. And he got filled with the Holy Ghost again, second time. Come on, church, when last did you get filled? These people that are laughing are getting filled. When last did you get filled with the Holy Ghost? Maybe it might not be laughing. It might not be drunken. Maybe you will sense the presence of God coming. But when last did you get filled? Goodness sake. Come on, get filled, get filled, get filled. You know how to do it. Get full. 
And Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Come on, church, threats, threatenings should be an occasion where you get full of the Holy Ghost. Not empty, not less. The more bad news we see on TV, the more we should be going like, Jesus, fill me. That was Acts chapter 4 and in verse 8. And then the Sanhedrin say to them, you're no longer to preach in this name. You know, if it was other Christians, maybe not ACF or, or our online viewers, maybe it was other Christians that were going, you know, it's orders now. They were the government of the day. It's government orders. We're not allowed to preach in the name of Jesus. And they said, hey, judge for yourselves. Do we obey God or man? Because incidentally, I don't know if you've looked recently, you're man. You're just men. And he preached. They went out, they went back to the believers, and they go back and said, hey, this is what they said. They all went like, oh, really? It's written in the Bible. No, it's not. They went, come on, let's pray. And the Bible tells us they prayed, they quoted Psalm 2, and it says, and they were all filled. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, and the place where they were meeting was shaken. Not spiritually. Oh, the prayer meeting was so great, the place was shaken. Well, well you all got excited, and some people shook, but the, no, 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 the building shook. The building where they were meeting, the building shook. It's recorded. In the Hebridean revival, it's recorded in many other revivals. It's recorded in Azusa Street revivals that buildings literally shook, that people thought there was an earthquake because the church or the place where the believers were praying was shaking, shaking violently. Pastor Dave Roberts tells the story that in the early days of their church, when they still planted their church, they left the religious church where they were and they went and planted their own church and they had a prayer meeting the one day. And they were praying, and they said they were all aware of the presence, the power of God. It was awesome. And the next day when he was at work, some of his workmates said to him, what were you guys doing last night? Because when we walked past your church, the whole building was shaking. And just your building. Come on, church. Come on. All right? God is good. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible to him who believes. Okay? Everything, number three, was finished at the cross. Every human condition. Number four, you are significant. And so God wants to fill you. I want to read something to you, and I want you to hear. I want you to hear with the Spirit, okay? This was... An observation by a man called Phil Hansen. Philip Hansen. The context is in the meetings of John G. Lake. While ministering at Johannesburg in South Africa, this is John G. Lake writing. I received early days of his ministry. He mentions the year. I received an invitation to preach in the city of Pretoria what was then called Transvaal. Consequently, a series of meetings was arranged for. It was my first visit to Pretoria. And the congregation to whom I ministered were all strangers to me. I was entertained at the home of Mr., and they blotted out the name, 
in Hamilton Street in Pretoria. I arrived about three o'clock in the afternoon. About 4.30, a gentleman called and inquired of the wife, the lady of the home, if an American stranger was at her house. Now, you got to listen. Okay, just listen. So he goes. He doesn't know anybody. He's never been there before. Just recently arrived in South Africa. Goes from Johannesburg to Pretoria. Remember those days, it wasn't all built up and connected like this. So just get the picture. It's in Hamilton Street. It's 4.30 in the afternoon. The lady of the house now gets a phone call. Is there an American gentleman there with you? She replies, yes. Reverend Lake has just arrived this afternoon from Johannesburg. She told him that I was an American and had recently come to Africa. He asked me for an interview, an appointment. In the course of this interview, he told me that he had been the secretary. Now, I think for the Afrikaans people, they will probably recognize this. I don't know the history. I'm from Zims. He told me that he had been secretary to Dr. Lates, an acting secretary of state for the old Transvaal governor under Paul Kruger, the last Dutch president of the Transvaal Republic. So influential people. He told me, this guy, who had been with Dr. Leitz and with President Kruger, he told me that when the Boer War closed, because of what he considered faithfulness to the cause he had represented with the Boers, he refused to sign the agreement recognizing the authority of the British, and in consequence, he had been blacklisted and badly defamed. The word in old-fashioned English was, they listed him or they referred to him as incorrigible. You incorrigible fellow, as the British would say. This prevented him from obtaining employment. His family had been sent to Europe during the war and he had no money to bring them back. His property and money had all gone in the case of the Boers and he was impoverished. He did not have proper clothes to wear nor sometimes food to eat. Now he was in government. He said that notwithstanding these conditions, his soul was consumed with the problems of the state and his desire to alleviate the condition of the Afrikaans people and see the people restored to happiness. Isn't that how we feel about South Africa today? And in the agony, listen to it, and in the agony of his soul, he had been in the habit of going to one of the mountains for prayer. And after several months of this practice, one day the Lord revealed to him that a great deliverance was coming, that a man would arrive in Pretoria from America on a certain date and could be found at 75 Hamilton Street at 4.30 p.m. in the afternoon. Church, we would visit the mountain once or twice. We'll come to a prayer meeting once or twice unless it's cold. But we would amen revival. We would say we are spiritful. And this is not a condemnation thing, but understand that there needs to be an investment in the spiritual realm. After several months of going to the mountain, God shows him deliverance is coming. 
in the form of an outpouring, in the form of a visitation. A man is coming from America, John G. Lake. He'll be at 75 Hamilton Street, 4.30 in the afternoon. Go and see him. He said, this is the date. And I've come in response to the direction of the Spirit as I received it. When last were you led by the Spirit? He welcomed me as the messenger of the Lord and proceeded to give me details of the revelation as he received it. Revelation included political changes that were to transpire. A religious spiritual revolution that would grow out of my own ministry. And many events of national importance which became historic facts during the next few years. He further gave details in prophecy of the war in Europe and Britain's part in it. This was August 1908, just before the First World War. It was only after I had witnessed event after event come to pass that I became deeply impressed with the spiritual significance of his revelation. And I'm not just reading about John G. Lake. I'm reading about you. Every man has significance. Wait until I finish this thing. He told me that the present meeting I was to conduct in Pretoria would be marked with extraordinary manifestations of the Spirit, that those manifestations of the Spirit would eventuate in a profound impression of the majesty and power of God upon the minds of the people of South Africa, and in later years would create a stimulus of faith in God throughout the world. Now, I want to read that again. Read that again. Everyone say, God is speaking to me. Say, I'm significant. He said that those manifestations of the Spirit would eventuate in a profound, would eventually end up in a profound impression of the majesty and power of God upon the minds of the people of South Africa and in later years would create a stimulus of faith in God throughout the world. Why am I preaching what I'm preaching today? I'm repeating something that needs to be perpetuated. Listen, Philip Hansen comments after recording this article. Listen to what he says. When I read this, I was reminded of how much the world has been impacted in the last 20 years by men and women of God who have come out of South Africa. He traces it back to the secretary of Louis Leitz and the undersecretary of Paul Kruger, president in this prophecy, a man who was so concerned by the state of affairs in the nation that he goes to a mountain and prays. And God gives him the time and the address and he delivers it to John G. Lake. You know, these kinds of prophecies are important. Why do you think Hannah and Simeon were there at the birth and presentation of Jesus? It's important. It's important. I hope you're listening. He says this, in the natural realm, there are diamond mines in South Africa that supply much of the world with a supply of diamonds. In the spiritual realm, the supernatural realm, the Holy Spirit has provided resources for the church universal through those who come out of South Africa. Say, so I'm significant. God chose South Africa for revival. That's why we had Andrew Murray. That's why we had Kerbis van Rensburg. 
That's why we've had other great men and women of God. Apostle Richard and Giddy. And other great men and women of God. Reynard Bonker included. Great powerful men. Richard and Giddy. Zulu preacher. Powerful, powerful. He impacted Reynard Bonker's life usually. You know, he'd have conferences in stadiums. And then he would call all the sick people and they would line up and you'd get them lined one step away from the whitewash line of the soccer field, <laughs> the soccer pitch. And he said, he would pray and he said, when I say go, he says, you take one step forward and you put your foot on that whitewash line. He would touch the line. And thousands of people standing in a row, when they put the foot on the whitewash, were healed. Richard Ngidi. Come on, say, I'm significant. You ready for one more prophecy? This is a prophecy by John G. Lake, great revival in South Africa. There shall come upon the church from his time a great darkness. The ground gained from the enemy shall be lost, and false teachers shall arise, and false prophets whose words shall have a ring of truth, but will have no substance. Have we not seen that? They are those who will follow after gain. This is John G. Lake. And greed shall be their God. They shall show forth works, but their visions will not exalt me, saith God, but their own salves and doctrines. Against this, there shall come forth by my spirit a young man, another voice crying in the wilderness. Now forget about the young man. Let me say believers. I believe Prophet Quibus fulfilled this prophecy. A young man, another voice crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord, restoring old ways and shoring up the terrible gap in the wall to stop the incoming flood of sin and wilderness that should surely be in the church in that day. This one will be rejected of men, and his brethren will not understand nor accept him. He will dwell with me and upon me night and day. And I will remove any hindrances that will place itself against my purposes. I will use him mightily, for he shall not only continue the flow of this ministry, but he shall carry it to even greater depths. The great works that have been seen will appear as naught, for I will do greater works through him, for he is meek and seeks peace. I will cause the pride of life to pass from him, and the spirit of achievement instilled in him at an early age I will cause to leave. The enemy will try to kill him. That prophecy still hangs. That prophecy is still waiting, not for an individual. I've left the majority of my message. Maybe we'll pick it up next week. But that prophecy is still hanging. God is looking for people who be full of his spirit in nature, not in name only. Not who are driving around with the red-orange light on flashing, just barely enough running on the fumes of the Spirit. No, no, no. We need to be full of the Holy Spirit. And then when He moves, when He graces us, when He comes, we won't sit there with resistant pride. It's easy to laugh about someone laughing in the Spirit, but when are you going to laugh? It's a manifestation of the Spirit. It's not just their flesh. When are you going to shake? Or when are you going to stand up and prophesy? When are you going to be drunk? Come on, church. 
We've got to give in to the lordship of the Spirit. Where the Spirit is Lord, there is liberty. We're a Spirit-filled church. I don't want to lean on the strength of my own arm. I don't want to come and just preach a good message. I don't want to preach for 45, 50 minutes, an hour, trying to get you up to a place of spirituality, you know, because you've walked in empty. How about walking in full? How about putting praise and worship on, on the way to church? I can't wait to get there. Pastor John's going to make a fool of himself again this Sunday. Let's go, and, <laughs> let's go and watch him get drunk. Come on. Instead of fighting all the way or just keeping quiet or just going, oh, Jesus, yeah, we've got to go to church again. I can go and do my duty. You know, the guilty ones are laughing. You know, it's like, hope Pastor John doesn't preach too long. Come on, if I've said anything that resonates with your spirit, if I said anything this morning that just, you know, goes like, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus, just say amen by raising your hand and just say, Lord, come and fill me. Come fill me afresh. Come fill me afresh. Come baptize me in your spirit again. Come on, we need to be full of the Holy Spirit, church. Stuff happens. Supernatural things happen when you're full of the Holy Ghost. Supernatural things happen. But I just want you to get filled. I want you to start talking to the Lord. And I want you to start saying, come on, Jesus, fill me. I don't want it just to happen to others. How about to me? Come on, just say, I won't resist you, Lord. Come and anoint me. 